0: To tonight get into the standard of the law, and I want to remind you as we look at these things, and you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. But as we look at these things, to remember that Jesus fulfilled the law in its entirety. The law of the Lord is perfect, while Jesus Christ is perfect. And I want to remind you that Jesus fulfilled the sacrifices, that when we look at the sacrifices, that they speak of Jesus. The law speaks of Jesus. The word speaks of Jesus. And so many of the things we'll look at tonight are here to direct our attention yet again to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I love having that constant direction. In this ADD world and in our ADD spirituality, we are so quickly diverted. And yet God constantly is calling us back. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Well, he is all over the pages of Scripture, again, as we'll see tonight. Exodus chapter 20. And Lord, I pray for your blessing on the hearers of your word tonight, each and every one of us that we might be doers of your word. I pray, Lord, as I, as I wrote in uh, to those live streaming, as I chatted, I pray, Father, for my fellow sheep, for the Bridge Christian fellow sheep, <laughs> because we all are in this as sheep together, we're all looking to the chief shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come under your authority willingly tonight. We are desirous of your word tonight. And we just pray Holy Spirit of the living God, Spirit of Jesus, would you come and be our teacher? In Jesus' name, amen. The law. The Ten Commandments. Here we go. Exodus chapter 20, verse one. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, or in Hebrew, Shabbat, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed Shabbat and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. (laughs) All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood at a dense distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So, The people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. According to Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, it happened on the third day. It's the third day. As the Lord prescribed, as he said, had the people consecrate themselves, wash their garments, let them be ready, Exodus 19, 11, for the third day. And verse 16 again says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning. We've been over this, you may recall. So Moses brought the people out to the foot of the mountain and Moses went up the mountain and God sent Moses right back down the mountain saying, make sure all are consecrated. Make sure the bounds are set tight and no one breaks through. That would be a bad thing, I paraphrase. And then as Moses was down the mountain with the people, the God, God spoke. The Lord spoke the Ten Commandments as just written, as we just read them, spoke them aloud, the people heard in terms of a thunderous lightning flashing thunder itself and the sound of a a trumpet. So loud was the statement, the declaration of these things in Exodus chapter 20. And it happened on the third day. You know, God doesn't wait on chance or coincidence. He's purposeful. He is intentional with his word and in all his ways. And we've already noted in going back in Genesis and coming into Exodus, we've noted the third day references in Scripture and there are many of them. And, And for the most part, pointing to, if it happens on the third day, stop and look and ask, what is this saying? How is this directing us? Because we know what happened on the third day. The tomb was empty and the resurrected Savior appeared. So the third day references in Scriptures are to point us, direct us to that ultimate moment, that apex of all history, when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Going back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 4, we're told that on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place at a distance. What place? Mount Moriah and the place of sacrifice, where he was taking Isaac up to sacrifice him. It was on the third day, from when they set out, that they arrived there. Abraham saw the place. It would be the same place that Jesus was sacrificed, but also the same place that Jesus, right around the hill there in a garden, would raise from the dead. Abraham saw this on the third day, and the third day, that's significant because it was that day that Isaac, as it were, you could say, was raised from the dead. Oh, he didn't die, but he sure was supposed to die Abraham thought his son was going to die, assumed that God is able to raise from the dead, and so was willing to go through with this request for sacrifice. It was the third day. And at the end of the third day, just as Jesus would be alive and appearing to the apostles, at the end of the third day, Isaac was alive and not sacrificed. Abraham saw it on the third day. Many of these third day references will flow throughout the Hebrew scriptures all the way up to when we get into the New Testament, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up. When? On the third day. It's the third day. The speaking, the trumpeting, if you will, of the Ten commandments took place on the third day. Now, I want to go back and and pick up some things that I've been wanting to talk about, wanted to talk about Sunday, told you I'd talk about it on Sunday, couldn't on Sunday because the Lord redirected us. So we're going to start with some of these things tonight. Cleanup work, if you will, for chapter 19, but some important things to recognize. And the first is that around 200 AD, rabbis began to connect this Third day event in Hebrew history to a certain Jewish celebration. Now, again, this is 200 AD, and recognize that simply because the rabbis say it doesn't mean that that's the way it is. Plenty of rabbinical commentary goes way off. But it began to be accepted, and to the point that today it is celebrated, a particular Jewish feast was connected with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai on this third day. The Jewish celebration, in short, in one word, is weeks. Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. Weeks is the word Shavuot. You Bible students have heard Shavuot. You know this is the the festival, Exodus 34, verse 22, that would come 50 days after Passover. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And they would come in and they'd bring the wheat harvest and they would wave the omer, they would wave the sheaf, if you will, of wheat as a a worship to God, as thanksgiving for the wheat harvest. And it was the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would take place and they were to count seven weeks out, 49 days, and then on the 50th day, they would hold the last major feast of the spring. You Bible students know there are the four feasts, Jewish feasts that happen in the spring, and there are three that happen in the fall. This is the fourth one in the springtime, Shavuot. But here's the interesting thing. The rabbis, they looked at the calendar. They did the math, and they realized that this, feast day of Shavuot coincided at least with the rough time frame of the giving of the law. That based on, you know, walking through Exodus to this point, we know they're three months out from when they left Egypt. We know around the time that they left Egypt what was going on. We can timestamp a lot of this. And so they get to Sinai and the giving of the law happens at this time at the same time as Shavuot. Is it the same day or not? We don't know. And the Bible doesn't connect this. But some smart rabbis did. And they say the giving of the law, that happened right around the time of Shavuot. Therefore, let's celebrate that. Let's make that part of Shavuot. And today, especially with a less rural world, and Israel itself is a nation, it definitely has its farmlands. But now there's more focus at Shavuot for those who still celebrate it more on the giving of the law than on the wheat harvest. And in fact, they have another name for it. They call it Matan Torah. Shavuot is sometimes even just called Matan Torah, which means giving of the law. And they see this as the birthday of Judaism because here was the day that it happened. Here's where the covenant was laid out, was spoken by the Lord to the people. Matan Torah, And again, while this is not prescribed by God in the scriptures, there was a Shavuot that shares some fascinating comparisons and contrasts to Matan Torah, to the giving of the law. So keep your finger in Exodus 19 and turn all the way over to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. You know what's happening in Acts chapter two, I'm hoping. And if you don't, you're about to find out. This is huge because it's not Matan Torah, the giving of the law. It's not the birthday of Judaism as understood as we know it. It's the birthday of the church. That first day when the church came together, watch this, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, Pentecost? 50. The day of 50, the 50th day, what we call Pentecost in the Greek is Shavuot in the Hebrew. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent, rushing wind, and it filled the whole house, the bayit, where they were sitting. Bayit could be house, it could also be the temple, which I think is likely. And then it says there appeared to them tongues as of Fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Fantastic. Note this God came down on Sinai in fire. And now the Spirit comes down on Shavuot at the same time of year, Pentecost, in fire. Tongues of fire resting above each of the apostles. What was the sound like? The sound, it says a noise like a violent rushing wind, verse 2. The word violent probably isn't the right direction. It's "biaos," and "biaos" means a mighty or forceful wind. So it was a powerful wind that came blasting down this, this sound. It, it, it caught the attention of people all around. Exodus 19, verse 19 When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with kolot, thunder. That thunderous sound. So there's another parallel or similarity. It's interesting because in a prophetic word referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ, coming into his temple on that day when it will happen as yet future, Ezekiel prophesied, Ezekiel 43, verse 2, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Ezekiel was privy to that, got to see that ahead of time. Borrowing from this, the rabbis call the mighty, thunderous voice of God the voice of many waters, which again is, very familiar to believers in Jesus, ever stood at the mouth of a mighty waterfall or down below as the water rages and you can barely even talk to a friend or a family member there because the water's so loud, just pounding, thunderous, noisy, rushing, mighty. And that's the sound. And that was the sound on Mount Sinai. It wasn't just the light show It wasn't just the physical shaking. It was the sound that accompanied it that made the people tremble, even terrified. Revelation 1.15 tells us of Jesus, his voice was like the sound of many waters. And we're not talking about a gentle little stream. We're talking about power and might and wonder as this noise would fill the area. And it did. At Mount Sinai, and it did at Pentecost, Shavuot. Furthermore, the Bible indicates that there were 70 nations in play at this time. Roughly 70 nations in the world represented in mankind. The rabbis teach and believe that the voice of God that thundered at Mount Sinai spoke in all 70 languages would have been understood. If all 70 nations were represented there, they would have heard the Ten Commandments in their own languages. Was that the case? I don't know. Again, the rabbis think so. They have some basis for presenting that idea. But the idea, and it's interesting to me, Jewish Believers, Jewish teachers will say this, that the Ten Commandments spoken in Exodus chapter 20 are the standard not just for Israel, but for all mankind. That God's law, which would follow, we'll get into a bit tonight, was for Israel. But, but this part of the law of God, the Ten Commandments are for everybody. And you know what? You can easily make that case. Everything in the law, everything specifically in the Ten Commandments, man, applicable to us and how we live our lives, not legalistically. You don't say, well, if I can keep all 10, I can get in. Doesn't work that way. But you know what? Aspire to these. Start here. God is calling to everybody to follow him. But but look at this. Again, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Interesting. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together because, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then he begins to list them. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. So we know what they were saying. We know what the interpretation is of the tongues that day. It was worship. It was praise declaring the might and the wonder of God. And it says they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So put it all together. You got the fire. You have the mighty forceful sound. You have this hearing in multiple languages. By the way, that's more like hearing in tongues than speaking in tongues. (laughs) I don't know the dynamic there, but it's fascinating to me that miraculously, supernaturally, God made sure everybody there who Luke writes down as as representatives of every nation under heaven all heard what was being said at Pentecost. Just as the people heard, and perhaps, as it's been suggested, all the nations could have heard when it was spoken on the third day at Mount Sinai. By the way, though it didn't happen on the exact same day, Matan Torah, the giving of the law, this third day uh, experience, encounter at Mount Sinai, and Pentecost, that Shavuot where the church was born, has something else in contrast in common. That is as exact opposite. When Moses carried the two tablets of the law down the mountain, Exodus 32, verse 28. Do you remember what happened that day? 3,000 people died. On the day the church was born, 3,000 people were saved. In a parallel that's dramatic and contrasting, for you see the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law, perfect though it was, could only highlight sin and result in death. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. Faith in Jesus, who kept the law perfectly. Therefore, we can stand behind him and trust in him because he did what we couldn't do. And we put our faith in him and come under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 2. And so the third day giving of the law was not only a shadowy precursor to freedom and to life and to resurrection, but also one other thing to note here, to ascension. To ascension. We get a picture of, on this third day, of an ascension experience. Look again at Exodus 19, verse 16, that it came about on the third day when it was morning. There were thunder and lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. And it's the first mention of a trumpet in the Bible. And then if you look further in the chapter, verse 19 of Exodus chapter 19 says, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And I have highlighted the beginning and the end of verse 20. The Lord came down and Moses went up. Because that's my expectation. That's my plan. Well, it's God's plan. You see, what happened on that day was the first trumpet sounded in Scripture. And we know what's going to happen when the last trumpet sounds. First Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 talks about the same thing. That is when we are caught up. In an instant, we will ascend. We will be harpazoed is the Greek word, raptured. Same word used in Revelation 12 of Jesus when he was caught up. His ascension is referred to as a harpazo. Revelation 12, verse 5, a rapture. And so we will be ascended, caught up rapture. We will have an ascension. It'll be a split second ascension. Back faster than a split second in the twinkling, not the blink even of an eye. It's faster than that, the twinkling of an eye. And we will be with Jesus. He will come down to the clouds, even as the clouds surrounded Sinai, and we will go up to meet him at that time. One last pattern to note out of Exodus 19 before we go on to Exodus 20 through the end of the book. I'm kidding, but one last thing. Note this. If you look across history, what have we seen take place? We sang tonight one of my favorite songs, I Believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Note this. God the Father came down on Sinai. God the Spirit came down on Shavuot, uh, that is, Pentecost. And the next visitation on the prophetic calendar, God the Son will come down to another mountain. God the Father came down. God the Spirit came down. Now God the Son, now you might say, well, I thought God the Son already came down. No, the Spirit conceived the Son in Mary he was born the Son of Man. Still God, Emmanuel, God with us, but it's not the God come down picture that you might think of. Not like God coming down as God at Mount Sinai. Not as God coming down as God on Pentecost. Jesus came and set aside his Godness, his glory to be seen simply as one of us. But Jesus Christ, as God the Son, will come down. And I'm not talking about the rapture of the church. He's only going to come as far as the clouds. We'll meet him there. The Bible's very explicit about this. Another coming down that happens after the rapture. The rapture happens first. We'll be caught up. After that, God the Son comes down in what Titus 2.13 refers to as the glorious appearing what we call his second coming, or in Greek, the parousia. And Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, in the Hebrew scripture says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And do you know when that happens? On the third day. On the third day. How do you know that? Another prophecy, Hosea chapter six, verse two. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up, says the people of Israel on the third day that we may live before him. What does that mean? They talk about Hosea chapter six, look it up on your own time. Chapter six, verses one and two. Man, this has been a tough go. We've been through hardship. We've been through pain. The Lord himself has struck us, but he will heal us. He will bandage us. And then in verse two, he will revive us after two days. And he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Hosea prophesied that speaking with the voice of the people of Israel. And I remind you, Bible students, that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And it's been 2,000 years since Jerusalem fell. 2,000 years of what we call the church age. 2,000 years where God's dispensation, big Bible word, dispensation God's administration, God's work in the world has been through the church for two days, 2,000 years. On the third day, the Jewish people say, they cry out prophetically, he will raise us up. And I believe that is prophetic of the millennial kingdom when the people will be rescued and they will rise on that third day to enter the glorious kingdom. See how it all fits together, how marvelous the big picture truly is. The kingdom age begins on the third day. That's what I wanted to cover before. So now let's press on. We will look at the Ten Commandments over the next three Sundays. I'm going to break those up and we'll talk through those and study through those, take a little more time on those. So I want you to skip ahead to after now, the Ten Commandments have been spoken by God. Moses is down with the people. They're all listening the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the trumpet sound as God speaks. They're at the first trumpet. And then picking up in verse 21. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And then Yahweh said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Now he's reiterating what he spoke at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. But listen clearly to what he says when he says, you shall not make besides me. Literally in the Hebrew, you shall not make together with me or alongside of me. God is saying absolutely clearly. It's not just you shall not make something to replace me. You shall not make Yahweh plus or Jesus and God along with. You don't bring in your teraphim. You don't bring in your household idols. You don't bring in your idolatry of any kind. You don't equate another God with. You don't say, yes, we believe in Yahweh and Baal. Yahweh and Joseph Smith. Yahweh and Muhammad. It's only him. You don't come along. There is no alongside. He alone is God and there is no other. Our savior and there is no other. So it's never Yahweh plus or Jesus and our worship. Our devotion is to him and to him alone. And he, and I'm gonna use this word a few times as we study, through, I hope, this whole section, he commands it. I know we live in an age and in a time where people don't want to be told to do anything. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you hold authority over my head. Don't you command me. Don't you ask me. I have my rights. You know what? God commands it. There are no other gods before him or beside him or even alongside him. He commands, it's me or nothing at all. Verse 24, you shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. Now, it's interesting, he's talking about an altar, and you might say, well, wait a minute, an altar of earth, altar of stone, I thought he was gonna, wasn't there an altar for the tabernacle? Yeah, we'll get there. We'll talk about that. Right now, God's just saying, if you're gonna build an altar for me anywhere, if you're gonna offer sacrifice to me anywhere before the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle as the place to gather, he's saying there's a right way to do it, earth, and stone, earth or stone. And if it's stone, don't carve on it. Don't go cutting it out to make it all fit together and look good. You just stack it up, baby. If it's earth, you just pile it up. A couple things to note right here at the end of chapter 20. Number one, when the law is conveyed, an altar must be made. When the law is conveyed, an altar must be made. Man, when the law is handed down, there must be a place for sacrifice. There's got to be cover. There's got to be atonement because the moment the law is set out, we begin failing at it. The moment it's spoken, we begin looking for the loopholes and the ways around it. When the law is conveyed, an altar must be made which is why two verses we've read quite recently together, Romans 5, verse 20, why Paul says, the law came in so transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And grace isn't just God going, nah, I'll just look the other way. No, he says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Galatians chapter three, verse 24, we looked at Sunday. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is at the very heart of the law that that the law might one day be written on our hearts by faith I'm going to give you my perfect law you can't keep my perfect law but i'll tell you what if you will trust in me i got you i will take care of you jeremiah 31 verse 33 the prophet said the lord said through the prophet this is the covenant which i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The law doesn't just vanish. The law doesn't just go away. It's perfect. It's true. God says, I want to get it into you. I want to write it on your heart. I want you to love it and follow it out because we are in this together. But, but note this, look at the description of the acceptable altar of God. What he requires, what he demands, what he says, I command, this is what I want for an altar. Earth or uncut stone. It was not to be carved, ornate, artsy, creative. God says, my altar, plain and simple. Keep it simple. Earth or uncarved stones. I think that's beautiful because we know one day the altar would be a plain wooden cross. Why? Because the bottom line is, it's not about the altar. It's about the sacrifice. The focus is not to be the altar. The focus is to be the sacrifice. Religion wants a big altar, an impressive chancel, you know, that you can look to and feel holy and, and feel righteous and feel as you go up to it that you're achieving some measure of greatness and to feel as, as a pastor or as a priest to stand up on that big place and look out on the lowly underlings and feel great and glorious. And that's religion. A glittering, shiny, big, impressive altar. Something that feels holy. Holy. You know, once God establishes the altar for the tabernacle, and he will, and he gives specific description of it, it won't be gold, it won't be silver, it'll be bronze. Simple, rustic, plain, inexpensive bronze. That's what God asks to go, and that's only so it would have some sense of permanence, the bronze altar. So they wouldn't have to build up an an altar every time they settled and stopped and the tabernacle was erected for their length of stay, they wouldn't have to rebuild an altar. They'd have the bronze altar. But he said in this prescription, and and by the way, he he says this because this would be used, this, this would be in play later on. Moses, when he comes down with the spoken law that we're gonna get into in just a second here, builds an altar and offers sacrifice before the reading of the law. That's not the bronze altar. It'll just be an altar of stone. Or or Elijah up on Mount Carmel when he faces off with the prophets of Baal. He says, you guys build an altar, I'll build an altar. Well, Elijah's altar was uncut stone, not ornate, not designed, not fancy or impressive, just plain and simple, earth or stone. And by the way, and I got to credit Cam with this because this came out of nowhere today as we were talking about it. What are we made of? We're made of earth. We are people of dirt. I looked it up just to double check. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Those are the chemical elements in the human body. And by the way, those are shared chemical elements with dirt. As the Bible says, and we studied back in Genesis, dust to dust. God made Adam from the dust of the earth. We're dirt. We're earth. We are, you could say, Earthen altars. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's my favorite translation. Some Bibles say jars of clay. Other Bibles say different things. The word is earthen, as in earthenware. Made of earth. This treasure in these earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. And that was the point of the altar. Give me a dirt altar. Give me a stone altar because the altar is not the thing. The sacrifice and the glory of God, that's the thing. That's the focus. And we have a choice in this life. I can be be dirt or I can be altered. I can be earth or I can be an altar for God. You see, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, he says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Boy, that line right there, does that not describe the church today, you and me right now? I'm perplexed. I am. How to handle this season, how to move forward. I, I, I don't profess to be Mr. Wisdom on these days. I'm perplexed, but I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not despairing. I'm not worried about it. God is still on the throne. And Jesus Christ is still at the right hand of the Father in full authority. So yeah, we're perplexed, but not despairing. Paul said, persecuted even, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this, listen, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What does that say? We are earthen altars. Because it is upon the altar that Christ died, the altar of the cross, where his blood was poured out. And because of that sacrifice, he's in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Paul writes. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And the altered life is the one that bears the treasure of the sacrifice of Jesus wherever you go. Covered by the blood, washed clean by that perfect sacrifice of Christ, that this earthenware altar bears forth Jesus. The lamb sacrificed and the lion in his glory. Altars of earth or stone, which it can be for you. Some people are altars of stone. Stony hearts, they're hard-hearted, they're shut off to God and so they will never Receive the sacrifice. Live the altered life. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for? He is the only one who can alter your life for all eternity to what is good and perfect and loving and holy and true. The altered life. And those of us who have received Jesus, remember you are an earthenware vessel but you are filled with the treasure of the Spirit of God himself, of Jesus himself residing with you. When he calls us his treasure, as we talked about last week, that's because in us is his treasure. He, the Lord Jesus, is our treasure. Well, verse 26. So still speaking of the altar, he says, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. That's a little embarrassing, a little surprising. It's interesting to me that Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 says, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. What is the old preacher saying there? In Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps as you go up or you're going to do something foolish. Yeah, if you go up haphazardly, you come before the Lord with everything else on your mind but Jesus. You're not focused on God when you bring your sacrifice. Don't bring the sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of fools. Guard your steps as you go up. Now listen, the altar never had steps. But the old preacher said, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And there were steps and there are, they're still there. Steps up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And Solomon wrote that. He wrote of what he knew. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. That was taken so literally that the steps up to the Temple Mount were staggered. That is not like, you know, Island County Code, which says the steps have to be a certain number of inches from step to step as you go up because we can't walk on anything that's not perfectly measured. No, what Solomon did in building steps up to the house of God was he staggered them at different heights. And it's like that. If you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the eastern side or the south end of the Temple Mount, the old steps are there. It's marvelous. And we often do Bible study right there. We'll sit down and open up the word. And more and more, there have been other groups all over the place, you know, on the southern steps. But if you walk up those steps, you pretty quickly realize these things are not even didn't these people understand Island County code? Of course they understood code in those days, but it was intentional that every step was of a different height so that you had to stop and pay attention when you were going up to the house of God. That's beautiful to me. But here the altar itself, the altar, you shall not go up by steps. So when the bronze altar would be constructed for the tabernacle, they weren't to have steps up to it. They had a ramp because the bronze altar itself was rather large and you had to be able to get up to the top of the altar to offer the sacrifice. So they had a ramp going up and to protect against their nakedity, not sure if that's a word, but to protect against it, the priestly attire included Exodus 28, verse 42, you can't make this up, linen boxer briefs. So they had robes, linen robes, the priests, Performing their priestly duty, the robes would go down ankle length, full length robes that they wore. But just in case, if they were going up the ramp, they had to wear those boxer briefs of linen under the robes as part of the deal. Why? Second thing to note in this section, because the higher the steps, the greater the exposure. (laughs) You go up, you're wearing some little short little skirt, The higher the steps, the greater the exposure, and no one needs to see that. (laughs) Especially when you're coming into worship. You know, there is something, total side note here, but we're lacking propriety and modesty when we come before the Lord. In our Christian worship today, and I'm not saying we have to go back to suits and ties. I used to wear them as a kid in Southern California, sweltering all day long but that we understand how we are presenting ourselves to God when we come to worship because it's for Him and about Him. And we ought to think about those things. Well, I wanted this morning to wear short shorts. Well, that's good for you. Maybe that's what you want, but how about some modesty for the Lord? And how about recognizing the body of Christ around you? Others that could be distracted as you're going up in that short skirt. Don't. Go up steps. Listen, the higher the steps, the greater the exposure. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? You go up and the higher you get and the more authority you take and the more you are above other people, the more you're exposed, the more everybody sees your flaws and your failures and your inabilities and your nakedness. The higher the steps. Greater the exposure. Better to bow before the Lord. Better to to bow down in humbleness than to be exposed by my own delusions of grandeur. Oh, I've done so much. I've accomplished so much. I have so many people underneath, under me. Well, if people are beneath me, I'm exposed. The Lord says no steps. No steps up to my altar." That, by the way, is the high standard of the kingdom. Keep that phrase in mind, the high standard of the kingdom. Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called the 12 to himself. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Translation, they're up on high steps. But Jesus says, it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That's the high calling of the kingdom. That is the highest standard we can attain to, and that is being a servant. I know we say that in church. I know it's talked about. It sounds really holy and humble to go, yes, we're going to be servants. But when it really comes down to it, who's willing to take the muddy, messy job? Who's willing to serve the Lord by emptying the trash cans and cleaning the toilets? And I'll tell you what, there there are three people, four actually on my mind right now as I think about this, Alice, Jane, Dean, and Jim, who keep this place clean and keep it running and mow the grass and and, and clean the toilets. And there are several others who have come alongside to help at different times. And I'll tell you what, they're gonna be first of the line in the kingdom. Well, All the pastors are in the back going, how come I'm not first? Because it's a servant. That's the call. But the command, again, with earthen or stone altars, this is, this is if there were going to be altars built in other places, which was allowable until it was established. That is until the tabernacle would come to rest at Shiloh in the land of Israel. For 150 years, that was where they needed to go for sacrifice. Or, or when the temple was constructed on Mount Moriah, they would go there for sacrifice. But to have a place and offer sacrifices to God, it had to be earth or stone if it was anywhere else. I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this in the teaching yet, I mentioned it to our staff earlier today, we were talking about Jeroboam's altar, one that was unearthed, discovered at Tel Dan in the north of Israel, we visited every time we're in the land, and Jeroboam's altar has high steps leading up to it. Steep steps, in direct violation of the law of God, you don't have steps up to my altar. Why have the high steps? Because it's impressive to be up there on that height offering sacrifice and the priest would do that in complete nudity. God says, we're not gonna do it this way. We're not gonna have elevated altars and, and impressive signs and, and naked priests running around in their rituals. By contrast, God established a modest, simple, unpretentious standard for his people. John four twenty four God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship, Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. Now, chapter 21. And we're not going to get through the whole chapter. I can already tell you tonight, but we're going to punch into it just a little bit. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Ordinances, note this, it's important. We've just made a shift in what's happening. We've just come to what's called the mishpatim, Mishpatim from the word mishpat, and it means judgments, it's civil laws, it's civil rights. It's the Bill of Rights. So picking up now in chapter 21, what changes is now we're coming to the Bill of Rights for the people of Israel. Chapter 20 was God speaking, God's law and his truth, and it is about him. But now it becomes more about the people themselves and their interactions one with another, the mishpatim, the civil rights. Note this, there's a a pause for a clear distinction to be made between the Ten Commandments, which the people heard, and now the law, chapters uh, 21, all the way up through chapter 24, the law to be heard, or, or, or to be written down and heard by Moses and spoken then to the people. The spoken Ten Commandments we could call the law of God. The Mishpatim or the ordinances which follow chapters 21 through 23 are literally called in the Bible, the book of the covenant. We have the law of God or the 10 commandments, the Decalogue, what some call in the Greek, and we have the book of the covenant. Now, let me just put this out before you. In whatever time we have left, I'm going to give you something uh, more instructive here for a minute, but then it's going to get very, very personal. So hang on through the instructive. The law of God, Ten Commandments, concerns our relationship with the Lord. Even though half of it is about loving our neighbor, that's very instructive to us in our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with God. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, is going to be written by God on tablets of stone. And as I said before, I think it's legitimate for all people to draw us to him. The Book of the Covenant, picking up now, the Mishpatim, picking up in chapter 21, relates specifically to Israel. This is the these are the civil rights of Israel. For Israel to keep one to another in the law, the Mosaic Law, some would call even this the law of Moses. Now God's giving it, but it's their legislative bill of rights. And it's going to be written down, handwritten by Moses, Ten Commandments on the tablets. The law Uh, the Mishpatim handwritten by Moses. The phrase book of the covenant we'll see in Exodus 24, verse four and verse seven. It tells us that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And in verse seven, Exodus 24, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And that's chapter 21 through 23. The book of the covenant, the Sefer Chabarit, Sarna says the title book of the covenant is of major importance for it underscores the the outstanding characteristic of the collection of this bill of rights. And that is its divine source. So it's a bill of rights for Israel, but it comes from the divine source. It's God given. Social rules. Moral imperatives, ethical injunctions, civil and criminal laws, and cultic restrictions are equally conceived here as expressions of the divine will. So while this is the book of the covenant, while Moses writes it down for the people, it's part of their covenant, the Mosaic covenant with God. And it connects them to God. Now some might say, why does this matter? You know, why all these laws? Why the Old Testament laws and the Torah laws? Why does God get all up in their business with civil laws? Let the church be the church. Let religion be religion. And let's separate church and state. And with Israel, God messed it all together. Church and state was all one thing. There was no separation of the two. It was all one before him. Why? Because the Lord can't just have a law that's exclusive between him and me. Did you hear me on that? God can't have a law that's exclusive to him and to me. Why? Because God is love. Therefore, intimately involved in how we relate to one another. His law has to include All of his people and how they treat each other, because how they treat each other is reflective of how they are in relationship to him. You can't love God without loving his people, period. And that's hard. It's real easy to say, I love God who I haven't seen. It's a little bit more difficult to say, I love so and so who I have seen. I didn't really like what I saw. But 1 John 4, verse 20, and it is so convicting, but we have to hear it again. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment also we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And so as we come into the book of the covenant, this is about Israelite relationships because God's involved, because God is love, and he wants to teach them what that looks like on a very practical level. And what's interesting is of all places, God begins the book of the covenant with the humane treatment of, are you ready for this? Slaves. Slaves. Verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. That is, he doesn't have to buy his freedom. He's just set free. Doesn't cost him a thing in year seven. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him And the bottom line as we begin the book of the covenant is treat your slaves fairly. So I'm going to go home and do that. (laughs) Listen, treat your slaves fairly, he says, and no man could remain a slave, no woman could remain a slave more than seven years. Six years and in the seventh you go free. That was the deal, regardless of the agreement at the outset. Sadly, tragically, Right here, these two verses, this passage has been used in history and abused to justify slavery in Britain, in America's past, to say, well, it's right here in the Bible, and therefore, you know, we can can have slaves. And so human trafficking began. Even more recently, this very same passage has been misused and abused to criticize the Bible as irrelevant or culturally immoral. (laughs) It's neither. It's neither a justification for human trafficking, nor is it culturally irrelevant or immoral. But those who co-opted Scripture or or, or criticized the word failed to use, forgive me, but the other 99.9% of their pea brains to pause and look at the context. What is being said here? What is this really about? First of all, understand, slavery has never been sanctioned by God, nor was it established by God. Slavery was already deeply entrenched in the civilized world of the day. So God bringing this law of the treatment of a slave was to bring fairness and justice and compassion into what was already going on in the culture. Let me put it this way. God didn't initiate slavery. He relegated it or or, no, regulated. That's even better. He didn't relegate slavery. He regulated slavery. I like that better. Write that down. God didn't start it off. God didn't say, hey, let's do this slavery thing and here's how you do it. No, it was already going on. And so he said, I'm going to give you regulations to be fair to those enslaved. But more than that, and get this, the slavery here was not, human trafficking. That has never been okay with God. The slavery here could also be defined as indentured servitude. These are those who uh, sometimes because of, of poverty or great debt, got to the end of their rope and had no other alternative but to enter into an arrangement by which they could receive salary, they could work as an indentured servant for a period of time. And God stepped in and said, in that situation, I'll allow it for six years. But in the seventh, my son, my daughter must go free. That's what we're talking about here. By self-sale, a person could, who was desperately poor, could gain a measure of security here, but also know it was not for the rest of their life. No, they could walk out a free person six years later and the debts would be erased because God is into erasing debt. Did you know that? God loves to take debt and wipe it clean. That's how he thinks, how he functions. And by the way, notice also that it is a brother. It's an Israelite. If you buy a Hebrew slave, it's one of your own. We're not talking about human trafficking from another continent or another race. It's among the Jewish people. If you buy a Hebrew slave, this is how you are to treat them, how to treat a brother or a sister who enters into that arrangement with you. Deuteronomy 15 verse 12 uh, underscores this. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. And I love this passage because there is a profoundly piercing implication here. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? The high standard of the kingdom. What is the high standard of the kingdom? It's a servant, a slave. Listen to verse four. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. Now again, this is within the six-year contract, right? But, verse five, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. Rabbis tell us it was the right ear and he shall serve him permanently. Listen, people who are under a veil, who don't understand what God is doing here, who don't understand the law, the rabbis say that this was a punishment. They say the piercing of the ear with an awl and becoming an indentured slave for life is a punishment for someone putting themselves back into slavery like they were into Egypt. And they do not understand grace. And it doesn't explain what's truly happening here. We're talking about indentured servitude by choice. And it is a beautiful law covenant picture of Jesus. The ultimate indentured servant. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. No, he will faithfully bring forth justice. It's one of the servant songs of Isaiah and it speaks of Messiah, the servant Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of, in the Greek, a doulos, a bondservant or a bond slave, the lowest form of servitude in the Greco Roman world. And Paul says that's what Jesus became. And Jesus set the standard for us, for every man or woman who would follow after him, to aspire—get this—to aspire to the high and glorious office of bond servitude, the office of the slave. Paul got it; he referred to himself often as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Peter got it; he referred to himself the same way. John refers to himself that way. James the brother of Christ, calls himself a bondservant. Jude, another brother of Christ, called himself bondservant. And 10 times, get this, 10 times in the book of Revelation, the people of God are referred to as bondslaves. Well, I don't want to be a slave. Then you're going to miss the boat. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Marvelous. But listen again to verse five here. Listen closely. Exodus 21, verse five. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out as a free man. Hey, guess what? Jesus loves his father. John fourteen thirty-one. I love the father. I do exactly as the father commanded me. Those are the words of a bond slave. You know what else? Jesus loves his wife. Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Jesus loves his children. John 1, verse 12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus loves his father, his wife, his children. He, th- this is a description of Jesus. It is in the law for us to emulate the Christ who would come, to be likened, to love God as our master, to love our wife, the bride, the church, to love our children those who come to Jesus, perhaps through us or, or alongside us or with us. But it's Jesus because it was for love's sake that Jesus entered into absolute bond servitude. And by the way, note how it was done. The bond servant became indentured for life when he was, had his ear pierced by an awl into the doorpost. What? What just happened at the doorpost three months earlier among the the Israelites in their experience? The blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the doorpost. Pierce his ear with an awl. Guess where the blood's going to go? On the doorpost? Who are we talking about here? Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 6 says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Opened, the word there is karita in the Hebrew and it means my ear you have dug or my ear you have pierced. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And you Bible students know the Hebrew pastor grabs on to Psalm uh, 40 and in Hebrews chapter 10 says this is Jesus. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. That's Jesus. His ear was opened. His ear was dug. His ear was pierced, if you will. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this. If you quickly flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, you're going to discover it doesn't exactly say the same thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but instead of my ears you have pierced or opened or dug, it says, But a body you have prepared for me. How do we get from my ear you have pierced or dug to a body you have prepared for me? And part of that answer is that we're talking about translation issues, that that a body you have prepared for me is the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And when we read the Hebrew Scriptures, we're not reading the Septuagint, we're reading the Masoretic text. But here's where we see the two come together that an ear you have dug or a body prepared. To say the phrase, he dug the ear is to speak of the creative act. That the ear being dug is a picture of God forming the ear and creating the infant in the womb. These are both speaking of the same, it's a conceptual thing. It's a Hebrew word picture. An ear you have dug, a body you have prepared. A Hebrew mind would say, oh, we're talking about the act of creation. So an ear you have dug, he dug my, it reminds me, I've shared this before, but of my grandmother Irene who said, I remember all the way back when I was in the womb and I'm like, grandma, how's that possible? And she's like, I remember when God said, hold still, Irene, while I put your eyes in. (laughs) He dug the ear. He formed the infant, a body you have prepared for me. And in Hebrew thinking, it's the same thing. Both speak of the creator's work, preparing a body for himself as the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. A body you've prepared for me. An ear has been pierced. And of course, Psalm twenty-two sixteen 16 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And by the way, as the servant comes to the door and leans up against it and puts that lobe of his ear against the doorpost and they take that awl, that little nail, stick it up against, I mean, this is, this is painful piercing. There's no anesthesia for this. Puts his ear next to the doorpost, takes the awl, Drives it through. Guess who's watching? His wife, his kids. What does it say to them about how much dad loves them that he refuses to cease being a servant? That he sets aside his freedom for their sake? That he loves his master? What does it say to the master? He loves his wife. What does it say to the wife? He loves his children. What does it say to them? that he never wanted to lose his family, and that's what Jesus did for you and me. He became an indentured servant, not just for life, but for eternity, as the piercings in his hands and feet will forever prove. As John said in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I saw one as a lamb slain. Saw the wounds. After Jesus' resurrection, put your fingers in my hands and and here in my side, the wounds were still there. And Jesus did this for his love, for his family. And this lasted indefinitely. This was a permanent indentured servitude. Luke chapter 12, verse 37 says, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline and will come up and wait on them. Why would Jesus do that? Because he knows how. Because he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Do you think that was just for 33 years? That's the nature of Christ Jesus. He is at heart a servant. That's why he commands it of us. That's why he invites us to serve. And it may be the most scandalous truth in all the kingdom. But don't ever forget this, brothers and sisters, that the highest place of honor in the kingdom of God belongs to the servant. Jesus holds that seat as the highest place of honor. Matthew 20, verse 26 says, Whoever wishes to become great among you, Jesus says, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, that's like all purpose flour. It's just, what do you need me to do? That is the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the heart of my bro, Pastor Jake. Just got to say that to you all. What do you need me to do? That's the heart of a servant. Jesus is the pattern. And we are called to aspire to that high, holy calling of indentured servitude, just like our Jesus. Let me tell you a couple more things and we're gonna finish tonight. Verse seven goes on in this whole process, this slavery situation, this servitude. Uh, He says, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, first of all, I would never wanna have to have that uh, conversation with Anna Marie. Honey, things are a little tight. Budget's a little tight. We need a little extra. So um, I want to introduce you to your new master. <laughs> and this could happen in Israel. If a family become desperately poor, the father could have his daughter enter into service. Now, it wouldn't be like she becomes a slave. He's selling her off as a slave. No, more like a maid servant to work in the house. And by the way, there's compassion here because he's offering her because he knows she will be taken care of. Yeah, she'll, she'll work, she'll have a job, she'll also have a roof over her head that father right now can't provide. She'll have food on the table which father can't provide. So if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Wait, she's stuck? No, no. She's not to go free in the same way the male slaves do. It's gonna be different for the daughters, watch this. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. That is family can come and buy her, redeem her, bring her back home if he's frustrated, doesn't like the arrangement. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. So the guy's a jerk, he can't do this. Israel law, bill of rights. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. So she can become a maidservant in the house. And if the son falls in love and he he decided, no, I'm gonna give her, she's gonna become my daughter-in-law, suddenly the servant now is a bride. And it says, verse 10: if he takes to himself another woman, this probably speaking at this point of the son, if the son falls in love with someone else, the daughter wanted to give him the Maidservant, the girl, but no, he's with someone else. He may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her <laughs> conjugal rights. Now, careful, I'll explain that. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing. That is, without payment of money. That is, she doesn't have to pay for her freedom. If, if the guy, if this just isn't working out, she is to be set free. That's the pattern for the daughters. That's a whole lot more explicit and specific than the pattern for the sons or for the man who sells himself as an indentured servant. Listen, please don't miss this. Like so many other surprising laws, God, right at the head of the book of the covenant, puts this one in here to protect his daughters in the culture. Not to demean them. People say God in the Hebrew scriptures is a chauvinist. So far from it. You just watch as we study through Torah how God deals with women. How he loves them. How he protects them. How he provides for them. And that's what he's doing right here. God always looks out. My sisters, please hear this. God always looks out for his daughters. There is special care Given to the daughters. Oh, there is for the sons too, but it's different. There is a care he has for his daughters. And so a girl sold into servitude had three options. And number one, note this, is redemption. She could be redeemed. Her family could redeem her back. She couldn't just be sold off somewhere else. She could be redeemed. Secondly, elevation. As I said, from servant to daughter in law, to bride. Marrying into the master's family at minimum, at minimum, if she wasn't married into the family, she had to be fairly provided food, clothing, and conjugal rights. But the word conjugal there in the Hebrew also means cohabitation. That is a room, a place to live. She couldn't just be booted out. The the, the owner of the maidservant who bought her doesn't want to marry her, doesn't want her to marry his son, He has to provide for her. You have a room, you have food, you have covering. I got you taken care of. And if it's all messy and none of it's working, freedom, freedom. Daughters of God, my sisters, listen. You may at some point in your life have felt displeasing to a man or been abused by a man, a father, husband friend jesus has afforded you all three options he has redeemed you he has elevated you to the position of daughter no bride of Christ himself and he has set you free please note that he's redeemed you he's elevated you he has set you free don't for a minute Think that you are worthless because some bum didn't or won't treat you right. Daughters of God, that is who you are by faith in Jesus Christ. Highly, highly honored. Deeply loved by your father. Remember the tenderness of Jesus, the bondservant who is your groom. A bruised reed he will not break. And Father, we pause right here in your law. There are more amazing things ahead, I know, but we got to pause and just say thank you. Say thank you that though you call us to be bondservants, you are the example of the perfect bondservant. Thankful, Lord, that you offer us the opportunity of, of eternal indentured servitude to our, to our master because you became the indentured servant to save us. Father, I got to add this prayer and it's for my brothers, especially specifically my married brothers, but even my unmarried brothers, that we would look at your daughters as your daughters, that we would treat them with the kind of love and honor and dignity and respect that you have offered. I pray for my married brothers as for myself, that we would look at our wives as precious and unique and special because they are your daughters first. And I pray, Jesus, that our treatment would reflect our faith in you and that our sisters would feel loved and and honored and cherished. And I pray in the household of God, that we all would exalt Father in serving together. Thank you for your word tonight. Lord, would you seal this to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.